All right, last week, we began our summer series through the books of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, which are epistles, um, and epistle just mean is a fancy Christian word used to confuse people and, and make it, people think these are more special than they really are. They're letters. They're letters that Paul wrote to the church. Now, what makes them special is that they aren't just letters. They're the word of God. 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And in chapter 1, last week, Paul invited the Thessalonians to revisit a fond memory of the time that Paul had spent with them in Thessalonica. And it was a short time. If you read the book of Acts, Paul came there, and very quickly he was chased out of town. He had come from the city of Philippi, which was just north in the region of Macedonia. He had come south, having been chased out of that town, came to Thessalonica, started preaching the gospel, and what do you know? The people in Philippi were so motivated by their hatred for Paul that they left their town and came to Thessalonica and started to incite a riot there to try to get Paul thrown out of that town. And so Paul, in his absence, he wishes he could be with them, and all he can do is send a letter back. It's still not safe for him to return. He sends a letter back to them, and he invites the church into a fond memory. And last week he was remembering... He says, I remember your labors, your labor of love, your work of faith, and your endurance of hope. He says, I remember your sure election, how you turned from idols to serve the living God. I remember it as plain as day, how obvious it was that God had saved you because the word didn't just come in word only, it came in power. And then he says, I remember your imitation." These are the things when I think about you that I'm reminded of, that I think of. Why don't you remember it with me? Well, this morning, Paul shifts from what he remembers about the Thessalonians to what he remembers about his own ministry in that city. And so this shift in chapter from chapter 1 to chapter 2, first he says, let's let me share with you what I remember about you to now let's shift to you remembering what do you remember about us. When we were ministering, in Thessalonica, what do you remember about how we were sharing the gospel with you? So if you haven't already, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're going to look together the first eight verses of this chapter. As we try to see and remember what does a faithful minister look like? What does a faithful minister look like? Let's stand together as we hear the word of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. 
Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. You may be seated. On a Sunday where we're going to be talking about an illustration of a nursing mother with her children, uh, let's all bear with one another and with our kids. We love them. We want them in here. And so these sounds, these noises are not a sign that something's going wrong in church. It's actually a sign that something very right is happening. Okay, so let's, we'll bear with one another in the ups and downs. Nobody feel embarrassed about uh, our kids not behaving like adults. It's okay. <laughs> What does a faithful minister look like? In many ways, the things that we're going to see here and that we heard read aloud in these eight verses are nothing new. They're not surprising to us. Paul, in fact, repeatedly tells the Thessalonians, he says, you know this already. You know. You yourselves know, brothers. They do remember. But the thing in the Christian life is that sometimes we have to be reminded of what we already know. Isn't that true? Yeah. Do you and I know what a faithful minister of the gospel looks like? I hope so. I hope so. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But this morning, we all need to be reminded. Paul is calling us to remember three things about what it looks like to see and to experience the ministry of a faithful minister. And it's these three things. A faithful minister suffers for the gospel. Secondly, a faithful minister speaks with godly boldness. And then thirdly, Paul shows us and reminds us that a faithful minister shares his life with his listeners. So let's think about these three things for a few minutes. A faithful minister suffers for the gospel, speaks with godly boldness, and shares his life with his listeners. The chapter starts with the three-letter word, for. For you yourselves know, brothers. And when Paul does that, what he's showing us is that chapter 2 is not a new topic. He's not starting some new piece of his letter, this is a continuation of something that's come before. What he has to say this morning about faithful ministers is directly connected to something that he said back in chapter 1. And what is that? Well, everything really flows downstream from verse 6 in chapter 1. Look at it with me. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. He's speaking to the church there. You imitated us for you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And then each new sentence from there on in verse 8 begins with the word for. And verse 9 begins with the word for. And then the third sentence, chapter 2, verse 1, begins with the word for. Which means that these three sentences are explaining what Paul means when he says... You, church, became imitators of us, 
specifically in this activity of receiving the word, he says, in much affliction. You were imitating us when you did that. And so he's going to explain what that means. How did that happen in their midst? What does that look like to receive the word in much affliction? And why is that imitating Paul, Silas, and Timothy? Let me read to you again verses 1 and 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So Paul says, here's what happened, Thessalonians. You saw us come preach the gospel to you, even though we were suffering, we were being abused, beaten, imprisoned, there was much turmoil and conflict, and as you saw us preaching the word through suffering, you imitated us by receiving that same word through much suffering. Number one, a faithful minister suffers for the gospel. I don't know if you've read the book of Acts, but you can read all about how the gospel came to this church that Paul's writing to in chapters Acts 16 and 17. The story goes, Paul saw a vision. He was having really good ministry in Asia, but uh, he saw a vision of a man who was calling and saying, please come preach the gospel to us in Macedonia. And concluding this was the spirit moving him, he traveled across the sea to a city of Philippi. And you know what happened when he got there? People didn't get saved. They rejected his message. They stripped him. They beat him. They imprisoned him. Let me read to you what it says. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them, gave orders to beat them with rods, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison, fastening their feet in the stocks. So they're like in the maximum security section of the prison. That's what became of this vision of this man saying, come preach the gospel to us. But here's the astounding thing. The next day, Paul and Silas, released from prison, they go down the highway, they get off the exit at the very next town, and guess what they do? They go into the synagogue, they preach the very same gospel that got them attacked, beaten, and imprisoned in the last town. And do you know what happened? The exact same thing happened in Thessalonica. But do you know what? It didn't happen to Paul and Silas. I don't know if they got smart and, you know, they kind of figured out how to evade the crowd. But they couldn't find Paul and Silas. So do you know who they laid hands on? The Thessalonian believers. The brand new Christians. They drugged them into the streets. They beat them. They threw them into prison. Paul says, you imitated me. You suffered for the gospel the same way that I did. Number one, faithful ministers suffer for the gospel. If you've been coming to our Missionary Heroes class, this is not surprising in any, any fashion to you. Because this is what we've been reading and learning about with every single missionary who's gone into the field. Just for one example, Adoniram Judson was a missionary to Burma, uh, which is modern-day Myanmar near Thailand and Vietnam. When he got there, he suffered imprisonment, starvation, torture. His pregnant wife had to travel two miles both ways in order to just bring food to feed him because they didn't feed their prisoners. 
She had their child while he was in jail and then wasn't able to nurse her own child because of all the hardships of caring for her husband, had to plead with women in the village to, to nurse her child for her. And then when he was released from prison, his wife was so depleted from caring for him that she passed away. The child passed away, and then news came that his father had died back in America. In his short biography of Adoniram Judson, John Piper argues that suffering like this is not just incidental to the gospel ministry. He says, More and more I am persuaded from Scripture and from the history of missions that God's design for the evangelization of the world and the consummation of his purposes include the suffering of his ministers and missionaries. I don't just mean that suffering is the consequence of obedient missions. I mean that suffering is one of Christ's strategies for the success of his mission. I wonder how many less men would enter into the ministry and go to seminary knowing that what they are traveling is a pathway of guaranteed suffering if they're going to have success. We're surprised by this, but think for a moment what was at the center of Christ's ministry on earth. When we remember and we think back to all the things Jesus accomplished while he was here with us, all of his miracles and his teachings and all the amazing things he did, what is the one symbol that we look to as the crowning achievement of what he accomplished while he was on earth? It's the cross. A place of excruciating suffering. And then we forget that Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, now you take up your cross and follow me. It was at midnight of the very same day that Paul and Silas had been stripped, beaten, and put in maximum security prison that they saw their own Philippian jailer, the one who locked them in the leg irons, he and his entire family saved because they suffered. It was after losing two wives and several children and a whole lifetime of suffering in East Asia that today 3,700 Baptist congregations in Myanmar trace their origins back to the faithful ministry of Adoniram Judson. It was when he had suffered and bled and died on a cross that Jesus became the Savior of the world. Faithful ministers suffer for the gospel. Well, Paul endured the suffering while he was doing a certain activity. What was it that Paul was doing in each of these towns that was stirring up all of this anger and rage and and hatred towards him. What was the thing that when Paul's opponents got into the marketplace in Thessalonica, they said, these men are turning the world upside down. What was he doing? Secondly, a faithful minister speaks with godly boldness. Listen again to verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you, to speak to you, the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal did not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, 
So we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul says, this is the thing that a faithful minister does no matter where you find him. It doesn't matter whether he's in Philippi or Asia or Thessalonica or in Rome, in a prison or a free man, the thing you find him doing, he is speaking the gospel with a godly boldness. He says, we were deemed approved to be entrusted with this gift of the message of the good news of Jesus. It was entrusted to us, and so we speak, Paul says. We speak. We speak the gospel in a manner that pleases God. A faithful minister like Paul realizes the cosmic war zone is the human ear. This is where the battle is taking place. It's in the ears of those who hear. This is where the battle for human souls is won or lost. It's in hearing. We seek to win men and women, boys and girls, to the kingdom of God. And the only way that happens is when faithful ministers speak the gospel. Paul writes to the Romans, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's when Paul spoke in Philippi that they arrested and rioted and beat and whipped and threw him in jail. It's when Paul spoke in Thessalonica that it incited a riot there as well. Acts 17 tells us he was explaining, proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. The world loves gospel ministers who keep their mouth shut. The world loves a Jesus who just keeps his mouth shut about the gospel. Who just sticks to the miracles and, you know, the healings and the feedings in the wilderness. Jesus, just keep that buffet going. The fish and the bread, you got a good thing going. Why do you have to open your mouth? Just feed us. But it's when Jesus speaks that all of a sudden they say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? We don't, we don't like what you have to say, Jesus. And Paul says we had a boldness about our speech. This doesn't mean we simply had strong opinions. It doesn't mean we preachers know how to talk loud to people and intimidate them. Paul had a boldness that sprung from the assurance that what he was saying to these people was the truest thing in all the universe. Because it wasn't just his own opinion or even the opinion of smart people or even powerful people. The thing he was sharing with the Thessalonians and anywhere he went, the thing he was speaking was the word, not of men, the word of God. The faithful minister speaks and he speaks with godly boldness. He does not waver. He does not shy away from the truth. It's so disheartening when you see popular ministers go on TV and have a microphone put in their face and they're asked something pointedly like, are all people sinners or is the resurrection real? And they fumble around for an answer. When God speaks plainly, let me tell you something, the faithful minister of God does too. That's what we mean when we say speaking with boldness. 
With Paul, every faithful minister has the guts to shout from the rooftops, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. If you want to ask me and know, is Jesus really the Son of God? Was Jesus really born of a virgin? Did he really die for our sins? Was he truly buried? Did he really, his whole body and everything, come out of the grave on the third day? Is he now seated on the throne? Is the wrath of God really coming against sin? And is your only hope to repent and believe in him and plead and pray to God that Jesus would forgive your sin? Do you want to know if this is true? As a faithful minister of the gospel, it is my obligation to tell you yes. There is no truer thing in all of heaven and earth and the good news is, if you repent and believe, he will put his spirit in you and you will come to know this is true for yourself as well. Faithful minister of the gospel speaks with godly boldness. Paul is able to march around the globe and it doesn't matter whether he's on a mountaintop among the scholars and the philosophers in Athens or whether he is in a prison cell among the criminals in Philippi. He has a supreme boldness because he is not trying to please the philosophers. He's not trying to please the prisoners. He is entrusted with God's gospel, and so he is seeking to please the God who gave him that word. It's his word. It's his gospel. The faithful minister simply honors that word, protects it with his life, guards it, defends it, and seeks to promote it. It's true that seeking to help God's word to evolve for the 21st century or to edit the word, to tamper with it, to explain away the parts that make our culture feel so uncomfortable. It will win the approval of our culture. You might even get written up in something like the Associated Press or they'll do an editorial about you in the Washington Post. The cultural elites will welcome you as one of them and sensible Americans will love you because they don't like religious people who are too religious about their religion. <coughs> there is great ease in pleasing man, but it takes great earnestness and sincerity to please God because man looks at the outward appearance. But Paul reminds us the Lord looks a lot deeper than that. He sees the heart. Men are pleased by so much less than a pure heart. They're satisfied with outward appearances. They love to be flattered, entertained, they're happy with just external behavior modification. Just help me live a better life. In fact, it's sad, but a lot of people don't even care if ministers of the gospel are in it for the money, just so long as they help them get money too. When men seek to please one another and not the Lord, it is not surprising how quickly things get off track. Proclaiming the gospel quickly goes out the window because speaking the gospel doesn't bring what pleases man. Money, power, success, popularity. Preaching and proclaiming the truth of the gospel brings what is unpleasant to man. Suffering, abuse, distress, persecution, sacrifice. What happens is ministers who are seeking to please men rather than God quickly begin to speak around the gospel. They say things that sound Christian. Moral words. Week after week, they begin to put a little damper on the things that they think might offend some people in their audience. 
Things that might make men want to persecute, reject, beat, imprison them. Make Christianity more palatable for sinners. The problem is in seeking to please the sinner, we have damned him to hell. Because the message we are now sharing with him cannot save him. Because it is not the gospel. Do you realize that? What, what favor are we doing? Pleasing them with a message that makes them very happy and they're glad to receive, but they're receiving something that can do nothing about their eternal destination. Brothers and sisters, we have been entrusted with a message that makes mankind wise unto salvation. If you're a born-again believer this morning, in your heart resides the only message that can bring life to dead men and women. May our church treasure and imitate and honor ministers who are faithful, unwavering, bold, unashamed to speak this word with a godly boldness. Faithful ministers speak with godly boldness. So we've seen... A faithful minister is willing to suffer for the gospel, and they will. They speak with a godly boldness. But Paul finally shows us in his own example that a faithful minister shares himself with his listeners. So Paul, as he's remembering back, and he's helping the Thessalonians to recall his ministry there among them, he could have reached for any number of metaphors to describe how he related with them. But the thing that he grabs for when he's trying to grasp what was their relationship like, the thing that he says, we related to one another like this, is that of a nursing mother with her helpless infant child. Listen again to verses 5 through 8. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you became very dear to us. I've been teaching uh, in my American literature class this past couple of months the book Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. You all read that before? Maybe it's a way back in the annals of time for you. Maybe some of you were alive when Mark Twain wrote it. <laughs> uh, but the story is about a young boy named Huck who is traveling down the Mississippi River with a, an escaped slave named Jim. And it's their journey. Really, both of them are trying to escape slavery in their past. And this beautiful journey together. Well, it gets kind of hijacked by a man who claims to be the Duke of Bridgewater, England, and another man who claims to be the King of France. And it becomes pretty clear to Huckleberry that um, these guys aren't who they claim to be. They're just highway robbers. They're con men. Uh, but he can't really do anything to prevent them from hijacking their journey down the river. They get on their boat, and they just, every town they stop, and they run some kind of con. They go into town. They do a play, they do something, they con people, and then they scurry off and run to the next town. Well, in one of the towns, they come upon a tent revival. And I want to read to you this scene, and tell me if this doesn't sound so very familiar to a lot of preachers that you've heard before. Well, the first I know, the king got it going. 
and you can hear them over everybody. So they're all testifying and calling out hallelujah, and everybody's giving testimony to the Lord at this revival meeting, and the king slips in and starts hooting and hollering with the rest. And next he went a-charging up onto the platform, and the preacher, he begged him to speak to the people, and he'd done it. He told them he was a pirate, being a pirate for 30 years out in the Indian Ocean, and his crew was thinned out considerable last spring in a fight. And he was home now to take out some fresh men, and thanks to goodness, he'd been robbed last night and put ashore off of a steamboat without a cent, and he was glad of it. It was the blessedest thing that had ever happened to him because he was a changed man now and happy for the first time in his life. And poor as he was, he was going to start right off and work his way back to the Indian Ocean and put in the rest of his life trying to turn the pirates into the true path. For he could do it better than anybody else, being acquainted with all pirate crews on that ocean. And though it would take him a long time to get there without money, he would get there anyway. And every time he convinced a pirate, he would say to him, Don't you thank me? Don't you give me no credit? It all belongs to them dear people in Pokeville Camp Meeting, natural brothers and benefactors of the race, and that dear preacher there, the truest friend a pirate ever had. And then he burst into tears, and so did everybody. And somebody sings out, Take up a collection for him! Take up a collection! Well, a half dozen made a jump to do it, but somebody sings out, Let him pass the hat around! And everybody said it said it, and the preacher too. And so that king went around and he collected $87 from that congregation and he hightailed his, his hiney out of that place. They're hucksters, right? Charlatans. How many preachers of, preachers of the gospel do we have who are nothing better than hucksters, charlatans? I saw a commercial the other day for a preacher, a well-known preacher, who was selling coins with Donald Trump's face on it for $45, saying if you buy this coin and you pray holding this coin, you will have a special connection to God and he will hear your prayers for the president. What? What on earth? The man or woman who uses the gospel to benefit himself and to line his own pockets I fear the day of the Lord for that man or woman because they will be sorely judged. Amen. It is the opposite, Paul says. It's the exact opposite of what a faithful minister does. A faithful minister doesn't seek his own good and his own benefit, but the good and the benefit of those who hear. Paul says, listen, we were apostles of God. We could have rolled into town. We could have expected you to provide for us richly out of your means, and we could have insisted on having the seats of honor, and we could have spoken to you in high and lofty theology. But did we do that? We did not. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. I can't think of a more intimate, sacrificial, incarnational illustration than that. A nursing mother gives her everything to keep that child alive. She gives her own body. She gives her time. She gives her sleep. She gives all of her priorities, her own nutrition. She sacrifices all of her well-being to try to sustain the life of this newborn. Paul says that's the way a faithful minister relates with those who hear and receive his word. The real power of a faithful minister is not in wielding their personality and their talent and ability and prestige and authority 
for their own personal advantage. It's being able to lay aside all of that in order to benefit those who hear. A faithful minister shares himself with his listeners. Jesus Christ has shown us the way. Philippians 2, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Paul says a faithful minister is more than happy to get down on the floor and talk in the plainest of terms like talking baby talk with newborn Christians. He's not ashamed to get on the floor and to teach the ABCs to these new believers, to feed them milk, affectionately sharing his own life, nursing them to strengthen the faith. It's a very different picture than what we see in a lot of our evangelical churches today, filled with very aloof professionals or buff hipsters. Where are the ministers who are willing to nurse baby Christians? Where are the ministers who will share not just the gospel, but their own selves? This morning, Paul has reminded us of something that we already knew. Christians know what a faithful minister looks like. Sometimes we just forget. Faithful ministers imitate Jesus. They suffer for the gospel. They speak with godly boldness. They share themselves with their listeners. And you know what? This isn't just true for faithful ministers. True for faithful believers as well. In all those very same ways. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have simply called us to follow you. Ministers, believers, Christians, brothers and sisters, we're all called to the same task. I pray that you would fill this church with more and more faithful ministers who set an example for the sheep. Simply in imitating Jesus. Lord, we pray that as we do these things, your gospel would be made plain and that our Savior Jesus would be glorified in our midst and that you would save. Yes, through suffering and conflict and affliction, but Lord Jesus, you would save. We pray this all in your name. Amen.